For The Daily Princetonian, I'm Mark Tadici. You're listening to Daybreak. Just over a week ago, Princeton announced that it would join a tide of colleges switching to fully remote learning for the fall semester. This week, administrators explained and reaffirmed that decision. In a bit, we'll sit down with three Princetonian writers who've covered the change. Before that, we'll dive into a Department of Justice claim that Yale discriminates against white and Asian American applicants in its admissions process. And to close out the episode, we'll look at what Princeton's eviction lab is doing to help with an impending national eviction crisis. But first, this week's headlines. Anti-government protests have erupted in Belarus after President Alexander Lukashenko was re-elected for his sixth term on Sunday in what has widely been viewed as a fraudulent election. Security forces have clashed strongly with largely peaceful protesters, arresting over 7,000 by Friday. Lukashenko's supposed landslide victory is the latest in a string stretching back to 1994. Of his five previous elections, none have been dubbed free and fair by international observers, and each have seen a response similar to this week's protests. U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo condemned last weekend's election, and European Union foreign policy chief Joseph Borrell called for drastic change and an end to the repression of the Belarus people. Russia's President Putin has pledged his support for Lukashenko. Israel and the United Arab Emirates will establish fully normal relations in exchange for Israel agreeing to not declare sovereignty over any West Bank territory. With the deal announced by President Trump on Thursday, the nations will now seek to cooperate publicly in investing, tourism, technology, and other sectors, fulfilling Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's long-standing claim that an open agreement could be reached between Israel and Arab countries without first solving Israeli-Palestinian relations. The deal came as UAE leaders recognized a shifting political field in the Middle East, and would make them the third nation to have normal diplomatic relations with Israel. In other headlines, after placing retaliatory sanctions on 11 US government officials, including Senator Ted Cruz, class of 92, China is now pushing back nationalist sentiment and attempting to find a truce with the United States. Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi is considering bringing congressional members back from a recess scheduled to end in mid-September in an effort to handle growing concerns over the state of the Postal Service, as Pelosi and Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer released a statement Friday berating Trump and Republicans for undermining the service in the lead-up to November's election. Students at some schools started returning to campus this week, with various results. A cluster of COVID-19 cases was identified at a University of North Carolina Chapel Hill fraternity, and the University of Notre Dame has seen a spike with a return to in-person learning as well. Columbia University became the latest to flip to fully remote instruction, reversing course on Friday over a month after putting out plans to bring 60% of students back for the fall semester, which begins September 8th. While Yale University hasn't seen any recent changes in campus plans for the coming months, The school made headlines this week for different reasons. On Thursday, the U.S. Department of Justice accused the undergraduate college of discriminating against Asian American and white applicants. It's a claim Yale has adamantly denied. Olivia Tucker and Kelly Way covered the accusation for the Yale Daily News, and they join us today. So, first of all, what are the specifics of this Department of Justice accusation? Well, I guess the Department of Justice is saying that Yale violates Title VI and says that 
while, while the Supreme Court has set a precedent that colleges are allowed to use race as one factor in admissions, the Justice Department finds that Yale uses race as a significant portion of its admissions decision. And they reached this conclusion as the result of a two-year investigation that was launched essentially after there was like a 2016 initial complaint from the Asian American Coalition for Education, and they initially filed it against Yale, Brown, and Dartmouth, but the DOJ dropped the cases against Brown and Dartmouth because they decided there wasn't enough evidence, but they went forward with Yale's. And so if you read the letter that they put out on Thursday, the language that they use is sort of... Yale doesn't just use race and, and national origin as like a narrow consideration, um, which, which the Supreme Court has ruled that universities are entitled to, but rather that it uses race at multiple stages in its admissions process, therefore acting as a multiplier, was the language that the DOJ used. Interesting. So we've seen a similar case before where a student organization sued Harvard for supposedly discriminating against Asian American students. That case was struck down by a judge last year so how does this new claim tie into that situation? Well, I guess they're very similar charges. I guess the key difference is that the Harvard case went to court where Harvard was there present and there was kind of, they were there providing evidence, whereas this case was more of just the Justice Department investigating Yale based on the documents that Yale has provided. And another, another interesting difference is that so while, while Yale's case was brought against them by the Asian American Coalition for Education, Harvard's lawsuit was brought by um, this group called Students for Fair Admission. Um, and it's led by this man, uh, Edward Bloom, who he's actually a white man and he's, he's pretty conservative. And so some, some people who observe the Harvard case have said that he's sort of, rather than actually advocating for, you know, like the rights of Asian Americans in college admissions, He's sort of like using them as a tool to dismantle affirmative action, which is interesting. What has the response from Yale faculty and administration been over the past few days since the allegations came out? Dean Quinlan, who's um, the dean of admissions, has a press statement that kind of echoes the same thing that President Salovey says, which is essentially that Yale disagrees with the ruling and that Yale uses race and national origin as one aspect of a holistic admissions process, and that it's important to include for the sake of diversity at the school, and that had the Justice Department had all the information or had Yale been able to provide all the information to the Justice Department, the ruling may have been different. In terms of student body, most of the students that I've come across are pretty against the ruling, seeing it as kind of an attempt to dismantle affirmative action and to make these very, very white dominant schools more white. Yeah, and, and sort of adding on to that, I think I would say like one of the biggest themes I've heard, you know, coming coming from the student body since the letter is sort of just like, if you look at the numbers, you know, Yale's enrollment over the past like 10 years or whatever, white students and Asian American students are the predominant groups already. And also, and this was something that we we talked about in our coverage of the letter um, and when we interviewed a Yale Law student, but I think that sort of a consensus is like a much bigger issue in Yale admissions is like the practice of legacy admissions and that that is a practice, you know, that's like 
much more biased and it and, and it also you know it reinforces like the fact that Yale is a predominant white institution because it allows white applicants you know to benefit off of like generational wealth and, and family connections much like disproportionately compared to applicants from other racial groups and then in addition the administration's response going off what Kelly said you know and, and President Salovey wrote wrote this in his letter to the community but the university right now is choosing to ignore the Justice Department's letter. I mean, you know, in, in the letter, they wrote that they demanded uh, Yale, Yale not use race or national origin as factors in its next admission cycle, and that if they want to use them as factors going forward after this year, they have to submit this proposal that, that outlines, like, how it would be used as a narrow consideration and gives a specific end date for when they would stop using race as a consideration in their admissions. And basically what, what Salovey wrote in his letter to the community is just like, you know, this lacks legal standing because it's not in line with, you know, the last 20 something years of, of Supreme Court precedent. It's not in line with the Harvard ruling from last year. And for our coverage of the story, Kelly and I spoke to Cara McClellan, who is an attorney for the ACLU. And she basically said, you know, like this, this wouldn't hold up in court if the DOJ tried to make Yale comply. So she doesn't really think the university has anything to be worried about. Princeton, though not currently under scrutiny from the Department of Justice, is still reeling from a recent switch to fully remote learning. Gap year application deadlines were pushed back, students scrambled to find off-campus housing, and earlier this week, New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy announced that schools across the state, from kindergarten through college, may reopen for in-person instruction. Caitlin Limestall, Barvi Chavra, and Marie-Rose Scheinerman each contributed coverage for the Prince on the goings-on of this past week, and they join us today. First of all, as everyone has likely felt in some way or another, this shift to fully virtual instruction was rather sudden. So, Caitlin, you went to the USG Town Hall earlier this week. What sort of explanations were administrators giving for this change? I know a few of the reasons Dean Dolan and VP Calhoun named were the fact that over 50% of students who were invited back to campus were coming from states or territories or even abroad. And per New Jersey travel advisory, they would have to undergo a 14-day quarantine. And as we all know, most of the dorm rooms are non-air conditioned on campus and it just wouldn't have been a very pleasant experience. And since the eating clubs are gonna be closed, um, they had talked about how the campus dining situation was gonna be pretty restrictive. Dean Dolan mentioned that Academically, um, they were hoping to have some classes be in-person on campus this fall, but since New Jersey hadn't entered phase three yet, um, pretty much all the classes were still going to be online anyway, so they thought, you know, why not just do it from home? And then, of course, also earlier this week, we got an executive order from New Jersey Governor Murphy saying that schools in the state could resume in-person instruction. Barvi, what's up with that? Has there been any indication as to why Princeton is maintaining virtual education in light of this decision? Yeah, so New Jersey, at least the state and its official, really wants all of the schools in New Jersey to open. But Princeton says that they'll stay closed for the rest of the fall semester, mostly because, as Mike Hotchkiss, the spokesperson, said that there is a high degree of instability in state regulations, and it just would be safer to just have the whole semester online instead. That makes sense. So 
I now wanted to turn to the student side of things, and I know, Marie Rose, you've talked to a bunch of students who might have been rushing to make a decision on a gap year over the course of the past week as that deadline was extended. So what have their experiences been like? Yeah, I mean, I think that from talking to students, what I saw was sort of a perfect storm. The really sudden fall decision reversal, a lot of people had already signed leases, bought plane tickets, sort of planned around the original decision from early July. And then we had the fact that we only had six days to decide. August uh, 13th at noon was the deadline to declare whether you want to take a leave of absence. And then there was also the fact that repeatedly Dean Dolan has sort of urged students to stay enrolled. And some students saw the fact that the university had said there's a possibility of being granted a two-year deferral as sort of a scare tactic that was rhetoric that came up several times with students I spoke with. Obviously, a lot of stress there. Have we heard anything else from students in the past week? I mean, obviously, it's a pretty drastic change and a pretty shocking change. How are students feeling generally? Yeah, I think um, one student I spoke with, Yu Jong Lee, who's a rising junior, was telling me that a bunch of her friends sort of after the decision reversal came out were suddenly in a position where they wanted to take a year off, but they only had five days to really plan one. So she felt inspired to kind of put together a Google Drive of resources um, for them because she actually was once in a position herself where she had to take an unplanned gap year and kind of had a lot of firsthand experience with that. But then ultimately, she realized it was actually such a widespread problem that she wanted to share that resource in res college listservs, especially for students who are low income and perhaps have a barrier to doing gap year, even if they might want to, um, because obviously the job market is really difficult right now. Outside of the bubble, an eviction crisis looms across the nation. As we noted a few weeks back, a federal moratorium on evictions expired on July 24th, and as Congress continues to miss out on passing further pandemic relief, millions of Americans face the prospect of losing their homes. Francesca Block, a features writer for The Prince, has been in touch with Princeton's eviction lab on this crisis, and she joins us today. To start really quick, what exactly is the Princeton Eviction Lab? So the Princeton Eviction Lab is a research lab based in Princeton, spearheaded by Professor Matthew Desmond when he was doing a lot of his research in writing his book Evicted, which actually won a Pulitzer Prize. And the entire purpose of the Eviction Lab is to really be data-driven. It's taking a lot of these stories and narratives that you hear about eviction and the impacts that it has on people in America and really giving the numbers to back it up. Um, also giving the numbers of when policies are implemented, here's how evictions go up, here's how they go down. Um, so to really give go- the government also a better idea of how they need to govern and make sure that they are providing people with housing. So once the pandemic started back in March or April, when did the folks at the eviction lab start to realize that a crisis like this was on its way? Absolutely. So. In speaking with Professor Desmond, who's kind of leading this lab, and some of the other researchers, such as Peter Hepburn, the sentiment that I got from them was they knew that 
this was coming. As soon as the coronavirus pandemic really hit and the message to people was shelter at home, stay at home, the immediate question then becomes, well, what about for those where home is not stable? What about for those who don't even have a home? And renters in this country are some of the most vulnerable populations. And so because of that, they are most vulnerable to large economic changes. Uh, they're most vulnerable to public health crises and not being able to have the resources to protect themselves and their families. And so researchers at the eviction lab knew from the start, maybe they didn't know how long it was going to take. They didn't know the scope of this problem and where we would be today, but they knew that renters were going to be in need of serious help. So they had that knowledge way back in March and April, and it's been five months since then. What exactly went wrong? to get us to the place we're at today where millions of Americans could lose their homes in a pandemic? Again, I'm not an expert on eviction in America. Obviously, people like Professor Desmond have dedicated their entire careers to studying kind of just that question that you asked. But from the knowledge I do have and from speaking with members of the eviction lab, I I think it can narrow down to a couple main points. And one of them is really rooted in history of why are evictions so prevalent in the United States to begin with? And why are renters so vulnerable? Why don't those protections exist to give renters a better chance and to to give them, again, a more equal opportunity? And so one of those is, I think, this continual dismantling of certain safety nets that exist for renters and for people who are living in poverty and also people living in deep, deep poverty, less than $2 a day poverty. And I think the affordable housing system that currently exists in the United States as well, where when you apply for affordable housing in cities such as Milwaukee or Chicago, it's not a matter of a wait list where you'll have to wait a week, two weeks, maybe a couple months. It's, it's years, multiple years that you might be waiting to actually get affordable housing. And so because of that, you know, for people who are living, especially with less than $2 a day, for people who are wondering where their next meal is going to come from. They don't have the bandwidth to think years in advance of getting housing. They need to figure out how they're going to get housing today, tonight. And so I think that the federal government, the state governments have really failed people in that way. Um, And then transitioning into the pandemic, what we have now is this kind of historical, I I would say almost like ignorance of the needs of these renters um, and of people living in poverty in America coupled with this huge economic crisis that's spiraling out of control. And so those, that lack of protection is really coming to the surface and really showing itself in the numbers of evictions that are rising, obviously then state level, local level policies that aren't protecting the renters, despite the extreme situations are making this matter even worse and even scarier. So it's really a bunch of long-term effects that the pandemic sort of added on to and like gave new opportunities for shortcomings and they all combined to give us this crisis. So the lab's work is focused on not only getting to data-driven legislation, but also on providing what they call engines, these things that people can use. So what are they working on in light of this situation? So in addition to continuing to maintain their database, which is kind of the core work of the eviction lab, Uh, They've also developed two main new systems to help local state level and federal level um, legislators best understand the scope of the problem and 
create policy to address it. So the first is the eviction tracking system, which was actually spearheaded by Peter Hepburn, who I spoke to from the eviction lab. And the entire point of the eviction tracking system is that though the eviction lab centralized data set is wide reaching, covering a really large area of the United States, it is always about a year or two behind. And that's just because gathering that data is very difficult. A lot of it is not online. It's, it's really expensive to get. Um, it often ends up where you might even have to fly to locations to literally sift through documents to be able to implement those into a data set. And so it's always a couple years behind. But in this time of coronavirus where times are always changing and many more people are facing eviction now than they would have you know, six months ago, it was really important for the lab to be able to present data of what's happening right now. So researchers at the lab, they were able to automate certain areas of kind of eviction data. The reason that it's so important is because you can track eviction in real time, knowing when moratoria go into effect, when they go out of effect, what are the numbers of evictions? So enabled in being able to see when a moratoria goes out of effect and that evictions are rising, and I'm kind of paraphrasing Peter Hepburn from the lab, it's really important for states and legislators and the federal government to be able to see that real people are getting hurt. The other system that they're working on is called the policy scorecard. And the entire point of this policy scorecard is really to encourage uh, states and local areas to improve their policies. A lot of states uh, in the United States right now do not have moratoria in place for those who are about to be evicted. And so they're still running eviction court, for example, online on Zoom, which is just this crazy concept of literally being like, it's unsafe to go into the court physically because there's a pandemic happening, but you can be kicked out of your home online. And so that's happening all across the country and it's really terrifying. And so the policy scorecard is kind of keeping tabs on which states are doing well and protecting their renters and which states need to step it up. That's all for Daybreak this week. Be sure to tune in again next Sunday for the latest in Princeton news and an overview of the week's events on Daybreak. Available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or on dailyprincetonian.com. Our show is produced under the 144th Managing Board of the Prince, and our theme was composed and performed by Ed Horan, Class of 22. For the Daily Princetonian, I'm Mark Didici. Have a wonderful week.